When I was in college, this is before the advent of email and text messages, when I was dating my wife, I would write her some letters. Sometimes it would be sticky notes I would put on her car, and I'd write her a lot of sappy letters about how much I loved her, and I'm so glad that uh, I was dating her. I had a message that I wanted to send her. Well, one particular, right before the semester got out, it was around Christmas time, I sent her a letter, but <clears throat> this one was a doozy, and it basically said, I want to break up with you. I know that's terrible. I broke up with her in her letter. Didn't go over too well with her. Well, Jesus has a message for the seven churches in the book of Revelation that he wants to deliver to them, and so turn to Revelation chapter 2, and this is Christ's message to the churches of Revelation, the seven churches listed there. Now remember, the Apostle John was the last surviving apostle of the Twelve, and he was shipped to the island of Patmos because of his faith in Jesus Christ, and while he was banished there to this inhospitable island, he was given a vision of Jesus Christ. Jesus appeared to him as the Son of God in his high priestly role, and when Jesus in chapter 1 appeared to John in Revelation, he basically told him... I want you to deliver these messages to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Now, we often apply Revelation to our time and into the future, which we should, but we have to remember that the original recipients of this apocalyptic letter was the seven churches there located in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey today. Why seven churches? Were there not more there? Well, seven is the number of completeness and fullness in the book of Revelation. So these seven churches really represent different types of churches today. And you'll see on the map here the seven churches that Jesus addressed when he gave his particular message to these churches. The next slide gives you more of an aerial view of how these churches were laid out. And obviously the letters were sent to each one of these churches. You could see Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And these seven churches were real churches. Now, they didn't meet in church buildings. They met in homes. But Jesus had a particular message for each one of these churches. Now, the question that naturally arises is, how did these churches get here? Well, if you look at the next slide, uh, not that one, go to the next one, you will notice that Paul, when he was in Ephesus, he started these churches probably through his ministry there. It says in the book of Acts chapter 19 verse 10 that when Paul was in Ephesus, he taught the word of God and all of Asia heard the scripture. And so what commentators believe is that through the apostle Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, many of the people that heard his teaching left and they went out to this area and they planted these particular churches. Now, remember the vision in chapter 1, verse 20, that Jesus had. You'll notice the slide here. Jesus is seen as a high priest. He's wearing a robe. He has a sash around his chest. He has a sword coming out of his mouth. And in his right hand, he's holding seven stars. And it says that he is among the seven golden lampstands. This is symbolism to basically say that Christ is moving among his church. He is the head of the church. He is the Lord of the church. The stars in his right hand represent the leaders or the pastors of these seven churches, and 
the sword coming out of his mouth represents the message that he's going to give to these seven churches. Now, the seven golden lampstands are the churches themselves. Why is there the symbolism of the golden lampstands? Because the Bible says the church is to be the light of the world. And so Jesus in chapter 1 is moving among his churches, and he has a specific message for each one of those churches. Those churches are listed in chapters 2 and 3. We're going to look at the first four this morning, and then John is going to pick up the next three next week. Now, before we get into each church, it's important to realize that with most of these churches, Jesus gives a word of commendation. And most of them, he also gives a word of correction. There was only two of them he did not correct. And that's instructive for us because whenever we deal with people, and we've all had to deal with stuff in our marriage, with our children, maybe our family, we want to find the positive before we get into the negative. Some people are so negative, all they do is focus in on the negative of a person and what they're failing to do rather than dealing with some of the positives. And that's what I love about Jesus. Jesus knew exactly what was going on in each one of these churches, and he gives them a word of commendation. But when there were issues, he also gave a word of correction. Now remember, these seven churches are emblematic of churches today. Every one of these churches and the message that Jesus gives to them represent different types of churches today. And I wonder... If Jesus was to give a report card today on the American church, what would he say? If Jesus was to give a report card at the church at Calvary Chapel in Lexington, what would he say? And by the way, this is not just the church collectively. What Jesus is about to say to these churches is applicable to the Christian as an individual. So let's look at these first four churches that Jesus is going to address. The first one is the church at Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. You'll notice the slide, and it basically tells us where Ephesus is located. Next slide. You'll notice there, uh, number one there, uh, you can see where it's located. And by the way, that area is Asia Minor, which today would be modern-day Turkey. Now, what is the message that Jesus had for the church at Ephesus? The church at Ephesus is the loveless church. And basically, what Jesus is saying to this church is, don't lose your passion and your love for Christ. You know, it's easy, the longer you've been a Christian, to lose your love and your zeal for Jesus Christ. You could come to church all the time and not be passionate about Jesus Christ. So let's see what he says to this particular church. He says, and by the way, you'll notice the picture here up on the screen. I want to show you what Ephesus actually looked like. You will see this is an artist's rendition of the city of that time. If you go to the next slide you will notice this is the actual ruins of Ephesus. You can actually take a tour of this particular area. And there was a small house church there, and here's what Jesus said in verse 1. To the angel, and the angel here would probably be the pastor or pastors of the church, he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and that would be the pastors, he says, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, and that would be the churches, says this. In other words, Jesus is saying right at the outset that I am the Lord of this church, I am the sovereign, I know exactly what is going on because I hold the pastors in my right hand, and I move among the seven golden lampstands. 
Now, what does Jesus say to this church in verse 1, and rather verse 2 and 3? He says, I know your deeds. In other words, they were a serving church. He says, and I know your toil. They were a sacrificial church because the word toil means to labor to the point of exhaustion. He says, I know your deeds. I know your toil. He says, I know your perseverance. They were a steadfast church. What does that mean? That means they persevered under difficult circumstances. And then he says this in verse 2, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. They were a separated church. What does that mean? They were discerning. They were able to identify false teachers because they knew the truth, and they were able to fetter out those who were not properly representing Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3, as he continues in his commendation, he says, and you have perseverance, that means you bear up under difficult circumstances and have endured for my name's sake. In other words, you've hung in there because you want to honor me and have not grown weary. So in verses 2 and 3, Jesus basically commends this church and he says, you are a serving church, you are a sacrificial church, you are a steadfast church, and you are a separated, discerning church. What a great commendation. And listen, if you manifest those qualities in your life, Jesus commends you for that because those are the qualities that every church is to exhibit. But notice what Jesus says, though, in verse 4 is he gives them a correction. He says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. In spite of the fact that you serve me, in spite of the fact that you are sacrificial, in spite of the fact that you are steadfast and that you are separated, he says, here's the problem that I have have with you. He says, there is a spiritual hardening of your arteries. You have lost your first love. You have lost your passion and your zeal for me. And isn't this true of churches today and individual Christians today? where we get saved and there's an excitement in our Christian life and we devour the Word of God, we pray, we're very fastidious when it comes to fellowship. But what happens over time is the passion begins to lose its strongness. The honeymoon is over. And what happens is we begin to go through the rituals and the routines. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if you're doing what Jesus wants you to do, that you're always going to be on the mountaintop because you and I know that that's just not the Christian life. He's not talking here about emotion, although emotion is important in the Christian life. He's talking about love and passion for Jesus. And listen, the longer you walk with Jesus, the greater the temptation to basically lose your passion and your zeal. You see, Jesus had the head of the church at Ephesus. Why? Because they could fetter out false teachers. They knew the truth. He had their head. He also had their hands. Why? Because they were a serving church. They were involved. But here's the thing that they began to lose. He didn't have their heart. He had their head. He had their hands, but he didn't have their heart. And if we're not careful and we're not vigilant, and we've all struggled with this, we start going through the routines. And listen, the landscape of Christianity across America is littered with churches that basically manifest the church at Ephesus. They are loveless churches. When you walk into them, they are cold and they are dead. Do they have orthodoxy? Absolutely. They know what they believe. 
They have a doctrinal statement. It's very, very sound. But you've been into these churches before. You can hang meat inside the church because it is so cold. And that's exactly what Jesus doesn't want to happen in our life. I was reading this week an article about uh, a, a football coach, Mike Leach. He was the head coach or former head coach of Washington State. And here's what he said about the seniors when he was coaching there, and I thought it was indicting. He said, some of them have a kind of this zombie-like, go through the motions, everything is like how it always has been, that's how it will always be. Some of them, quite honestly, have an empty corpse quality that's not pleasant to think about, but that's a fact. End quote. When I read that, I thought, that's exactly how some Christians are. They go through the motions, they show up at church, they do their duty, they give to God, but you know what? There's no desire to follow God. And listen, God weighs our heart. God looks at our heart. It's not so much emotion. You're going to have ups and downs in your Christian life. You're going to go through dry periods. That's part of the Christian life. But we're talking here about a passion for Jesus where you want to serve him. Now, maybe you're in that spot this morning. Maybe you say, you know what? I remember when I used to be on fire for God and the thrill is gone. The honeymoon is over. How do I correct that, Pastor Mike? Well, Jesus gives three suggestions here that you and I can do. Number one, he says, remember. In verse five, therefore remember from where you have fallen. In other words, realize that you have a problem. You got to remember what it was like when you first got saved, when you were on fire for Jesus, and realize that you have fallen away from that. So Jesus says, go back into the recesses of your mind and remember what it was like when you first came to me, just like your marriage. Remember what it was like when you dated your spouse, when you couldn't wait to see them. Then Jesus says, secondly, repent in verse 5. He says, repent. In other words, don't just say, well, you know, you're right, Pastor Mike, I feel conviction. We're all guilty of getting convicted, but here's the issue. Conviction must lead to repentance. Conviction is feeling sorry for your sin. Repentance is where you turn from that. And so Jesus says, you got to be willing to drive a stake in the ground and say, hey, I'm not where I used to be spiritually. I've lost my zeal and my passion. I repent of that. I turn away from that. And then he gives a third thing. He says, repeat in verse 5, and do the things you did at first. Go back to what you used to do, Bible study, prayer. Go back to fellowship on a regular basis. You say, Mike, but I don't feel like it. It has nothing to do with feeling. You remember the height from which you have fallen, you repent of it, and you begin to do the things you did at first. Listen, you have to act your way into feeling rather than feel your way into acting. That's the difference. Too many of us have to feel first before we act, and Jesus says, no, repentance means you act your way into feeling first. Once you act, the feelings will follow. And again, you cannot debase your Christian life on feeling because feelings come and go. Now, why does Jesus tell them to do this? Well, notice, if you will, verse 5. He says, if you don't repent, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you, what, repent. Yet this you do, verse 6, have in your favor that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus says, look, if you don't deal with this issue of being a dead church, you got all the right doctrine, but you have no desire for me. And he says, 
if you don't deal with this, and Jesus is very patient with us, and he doesn't expect perfection. He knows we're going to struggle. But he says, if you don't deal with this, I'm going to remove your lampstand. What does that mean? I'm going to remove your influence. It could also mean your church is going to die. And listen, there are a lot of churches in America that are on life support. They have all the right doctrine. They're paying the bills. They're keeping the church building afloat. But there's a dead orthodoxy in the church. There's no passion. And guess what? Jesus has removed their lampstand even though they're paying the bills. They have no influence. Some of them die. In fact, all of these churches in modern-day Turkey are no longer around. And I realize those churches are not going to last indefinitely. But Jesus said, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. But then he says in verse 6, you do have this in your favor. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Who are the Nicolaitans? Well, many people believe they came from a man by the name of Nicholas, mentioned in Acts chapter 6. Nicholas was one of the deacons that Stephen had chosen, Peter had chosen, in order to serve the widows. And many people believe that Nicholas, although he started off well, he ended up going rogue. And so from Nicholas came what is called the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were known for their antinomian lifestyle. In other words, we're under grace, we're not under God's law, we could do whatever we want, and they lived lives of debauchery. And Jesus said, yeah, you do have this in your favor, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. And notice as he closes in verse 7 with this church, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, he's saying, you need to tune in and listen. If this is applicable to you, you need to apply it. And then he gives a promise in verse 7, to him who overcomes, an overcomer would be one who is trusted in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and is born again, according to 1 John 5, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In other words, I'll give you eternal life if you are an overcomer. It's kind of an invitation to be saved. And so what do we learn about this first church at Ephesus? This church was a loveless church. It had all the right doctrine. It was even serving Jesus to some degree. It was steadfast. But Jesus says, you lack a love for me. And so that's why it's very important that we don't assume if we just come to church on Sunday and we pay our tithes and we do all those things that we're okay, we're out of the woods. No. Jesus actually examines our heart and he looks at whether or not he's the priority. What does the Bible say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, there's a second church that he mentions here in chapter 2, and that is the church of Smyrna. Ephesus was called the loveless church. We will call this one the persecuted church. Why? Because there are churches across the globe that are persecuted today. And here is the message for the church of Smyrna and for you and I. Be faithful to God when you're going through suffering or persecution. I don't want to limit it just to persecution, but that's the context here. Be faithful to God. You know, a lot of Christians, when they go through suffering and difficulty, they fall away from the church. That's not the time to fall away from the church. That's when you need the body of Christ to help you and to sustain you. Let's see what uh, this area here is. You could see in uh, number two there, that's where Smyrna was located. And here is an artist's rendition of the area of Smyrna. You could tell it was a port city right there. And notice how identical it is almost to the modern day Izmir, which is where Smyrna was. There was a little church there that was being persecuted. This is the only church and one other that Jesus does not give a correction towards. Look what he says in verse 8. 
And to the angel, who is the pastor, you say, well, why does God dress the pastors first? Because listen, so goes the leadership, so goes the church. He says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life. Why would Jesus say that? He says, look, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end, and I've come to life because when you're persecuted, you may be martyred for your faith. And so Jesus is affirming the fact that he has life and he will give life and raise those from the dead. And notice his commendation here in verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation. Interesting Greek word. It means pressure. One of the things that Smyrna was known for was its production of myrrh. You'll notice the picture up on the screen, and you will see that they produce myrrh. Remember they brought that to Jesus, frankincense and myrrh? Myrrh was used, and it was broken, and it was crushed, and it would produce an oil that created a fragrance. And so there's a play on words here. Smyrna was known for its myrrh, but they were going through crushing. They were going through persecution. Now, exactly what were they suffering? Well, in Smyrna, they were known for their emperor worship. In fact, if you did not pinch incense and offer it up to Caesar, you would be persecuted. And so he says to them, I know your tribulation. I know you're being crushed because you will not offer incense to Caesar. And then he says, I know, verse 9, your poverty. Now, this word poverty doesn't mean just normal poverty. It is a word that's used for begging. What many of them had experienced was financial hardship because of their Christianity. They were fired from their jobs. They were let go because they were Christians and they would not offer up incense to Caesar. And some of them had to resort to begging. You know, there are Christians all over the world that are persecuted for their faith and they don't know where their next meal is going to come from. Obviously, it's going to come from God because where God guides, he provides But we have Christians around the world that suffer this type of loss. But notice Jesus' perspective in verse 9. He says, even though you are extremely poor, he says, from my perspective, you are rich. You see, how Jesus sees us and how the world sees us are totally different. The world may not look at us as very significant, not having the world's goods. But listen, in the day when Jesus returns, do you realize that the values are going to be switched. What the world saw as significant and as valuable, God is going to say, no, that's an abomination to me. And he says, look, even though you don't have the world's goods, I want you to know from my perspective, you are wealthy. You have spiritual wealth. You say, yeah, but that's fine, but they still have to eat. Of course, if God wants them to live, he will provide for them. And that's why when we go through suffering, we go through persecution, we must keep a divine perspective. And he says, look, in verse 9, I also know, in addition to the pagans persecuting you, you got another problem. You got a problem with the Jews who are blaspheming those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The Jewish community there thought that in service to God, they were persecuting these Christians. And Jesus says, you know what? These Jews think that they're a legitimate synagogue worshiping me. He says, when really they're agents of Satan. That's interesting because whether it be the pagans or the Jews, Jesus says both of them are doing the bidding of Satan. Do you realize that you have pagan religions today that we would say are demonic? But do you realize that we have false forms of Christianity that think they're representing God? But in a sense, they are doing the work of Satan. Muslims will often say, you Christians, 
don't worship Allah, and therefore you Christians are wrong, and therefore you're going to experience hellfire if you don't come to Allah. Whereas Jesus would say what? You think you're worshiping God, but you're really a synagogue of Satan, as it were. And so sometimes we get persecuted by the religious, sometimes we get persecuted by the pagans. Now, how should we respond when we suffer persecution or suffering in general? Notice what Jesus says here in verse 10 to this church. He says, first of all, don't fear. Notice verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. He says, listen. He says, listen. Don't fear. He says, I'm preparing you. You're going to get physically persecuted and thrown into jail for 10 days. And notice the devil was the one who instigated the persecution. He says, but stay faithful and do not fear. Now, I don't know about you, but that's easier said than done. Laura and I went to a movie a couple weeks ago. It was called Infidel. It's based on a true story, and the main actor is Jim Caviezel, who played in The Passion of the Christ. He is basically an American reporter and journalist, and he lives obviously here in the U.S., and uh, he does a lot of blogging. Well, he's a born-again Christian, and he went to Cairo, Egypt to give some speeches. And while he was there, he was in this panel discussion with another Muslim man, and there was an audience of Muslims there, and the Muslims said, well, isn't it great that we worship the same God? And Jim Caviezel said, well, in reality, we don't because I believe Jesus is God. And you could hear a pin drop. And as a result, the Muslims ended up taking him, and what they did was they began to persecute him. And as you watch the persecution, they beat him, they did a number of other things. I was thinking to myself, would I be able to endure something like this? When Jesus said, don't fear, it's a natural, instinctive response he knows. But we have to trust him because the opposite of fear is faith. And then he says, be faithful. Not only do not be fearful, but he says, be faithful in verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. In other words, if you are faithful, sometimes you may lose your life. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God delivered them from the fiery furnace. But notice what one of them said, even if he does not, let it be no king that I'm not worshiping your image. Sometimes God delivers, and sometimes God does not deliver physically in this life, but he takes us to glory. And he says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. I'm going to give you eternal life, and I'm going to reward you. Now, there was a pastor of this area of Smyrna. He pastored this church, and his name was Polycarp. Polycarp was a strong man, and when the authorities found out that he was worshiping God. They basically rounded him up, and they took him before a stadium. And they told him, if you don't recant your faith in Jesus Christ, we are going to throw you to the wild beasts. And he said, well, do what you need to do, but I'm not denying Jesus. And then the crowd said, away with him, away with him. And the particular leader of this area said, if you don't recant, we are going to burn you at the stake, and you're going to burn in flames. And here is what Polycarp said, infamous quote, 86 years I have served him, and he never did me no harm. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And you know what they did? They gathered him together, as you see in the picture here, and they ended up burning him at the stake. And the biographer said that a miracle happened. They said while he was burning, they said that this 
aroma came out and it smelled like frankincense and he looked like fresh bread being baked in the oven. He glowed. God did a miracle, but you know what? This man, Polycarp, was faithful even unto death. And so, what do we learn about the church of Smyrna? We learn that if we go through suffering and persecution, we need to trust God, we need to persevere, we don't need to walk in fear, but we need to walk in faith. And notice the promise in verse 11 that he gives to this church, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. In other words, if you're an overcomer, if you've repented and trusted in Jesus Christ and you're a born-again Christian, you will overcome the second death, which is being thrown into the lake of fire. You will not experience eternal separation from God. Now remember, just as there are loveless churches today like Ephesus, you've been to those churches and so have I, there are a multitude of churches, especially around the world in China, North Korea, Malaysia, the Middle East, that are Smyrna churches. They are being persecuted for their faith. They are suffering. And some of them are very small. They are very weak. But you know what Jesus says to them? Even though you are poor, even though you are persecuted, I want you to know that from my perspective, you are rich. In fact, they estimate from the time of Christ up until now, there has been 45 to 50 million Christians who have died for their faith. They say about 300 are killed every single day. We don't as Americans understand this because we have known peace and prosperity. But I'm here to tell you, and this isn't me getting on my soapbox, but I'm telling you right now, America is headed towards this venue. I don't know if it's going to be tomorrow or if it's going to be next year, but listen, we are headed towards persecution in this country. Our religious freedoms, I believe, are going to be stripped. And you know what we're going to find out? We're going to find out who the genuine are. Jesus is going to separate the sheep from the goat. Because there's a lot of people that superficially attach to the church in America that are not genuine. They're in it for the entertainment. They're in it for the cool coffee and the cool messages. And, you know, they got the best children's program. And they come and they clap. It's a rock concert. You know, but as soon as the bottom drops out and the roof caves in, guess what? Those people are gone. Because they've been not given a steady message. And this isn't to scare us. It's simply to say that we will suffer persecution, the Bible says. And so maybe you're going through a difficult time this morning. Maybe you're hurting financially. Maybe you're hurting in your marriage. Maybe you're hurting on your job or hurting physically. This isn't just limited to persecution, but the message Jesus has for you this morning is hang in there. Don't quit. Don't walk in fear, but walk in faith and stay firm and faithful because a lot of people, when they go through difficulty, when the bottom drops out and the roof caves in, what they want to do is they want to stay away from God, and they drift from God, and that's not what God wants us to do. So we've seen the loveless church, which is the church at Ephesus. Secondly, we've seen the persecuted church, which is the church of Smyrna. Thirdly, I would have you note the Pergamum church. The Pergamum church, I'll call this one the compromising church. And here is what basically the message Jesus has for this church and for all churches today that compromise. Avoid compromising with worldly beliefs and practices. Now, we got to live in the world, but we're not to take on the character of the world. 
And listen, when Christians' lives are indistinguishable from the world, we now have become like the world. And you know what happens? We lose our influence. Now, here is the church at Pergamum. You'll notice right here, it's number three there at the top. And here are two aerial pictures. This is our artist's rendition of probably what it looked like in Pergamum. And then here is the actual ruins. One of the interesting things about this area is it's up on an Acropolis. You'll notice the stadium. You know, they had their sports back in that day. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, what is Jesus' message to this church? Notice, if you will, verse 12. He says, unto the angel, the pastor of the church at Pergamum, right, the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword says this. Why would Jesus identify himself as the one who has the dark, double-edged sword in his mouth? Because that's symbolic of his word. He is about to cut them to pieces and come in judgment if they don't deal with what's going on in the congregation. Notice what he says in verse 13. He gives them a word of commendation. Jesus is very gracious. He knows things in our life that are good. He says, I know where you dwell. He says, I know where you live. Nimmer, I know that you live on 125 Chesterton Drive. I know that. And he says, I know where you're living in Pergamum. It is the seat of Satan's throne. What is he talking about there? Well, commentators are divided on this, but we can say with certainty that one of the things that they worshiped there in Pergamum, again, was Caesar worship. You had to call Caesar Lord, not Jesus. And if Christians denied Caesar being Lord and they didn't offer up incense to him, they could be persecuted for their faith. Furthermore, you will notice this temple here that they had. It's called, go back, it's called the Temple to Zeus. This was big in that area. In fact, you can go today and actually visit this Temple of Zeus, but this was one of the gods that they worshipped in that area, and they expected you to do so. And then finally, there was this other god. It was called Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of healing. You'll notice the snake there on the statue. We have that on our medical symbol. And if you went to the Asclepium, people came from all over to go to Pergamum in order to be healed. So they would go to this temple where this God was, and what they would do is they'd basically lie on the floor because the floor was covered in snakes. And somehow they had this superstitious belief that if you laid on the floor and you allowed the snakes to intertwine with you, you would be healed. I would say, listen, I'm dying because I'm not getting on that floor. You ain't sticking me with no snakes or no lizards. And so this is what they would do, and they would worship these deities. And you see, that was the center of Satan's throne. Why? Because Satan is the mastermind behind all false religious systems. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that behind all the idols that people worship in the world are demons. Now, if you say that in our politically correct culture, it's not going to be popular because people are going to say we need to be tolerant and we need to love people, obviously. But if you said, hey, that religion is demonically spawned, what do you think people would say? But that's the truth. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. You don't compromise with these idols. And you did not, switch the slide, deny my faith even in the days of what? Antipas. My faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, here's a guy that wouldn't bow down to the system. He wouldn't worship, and his name was Antipas. Antipas ended up being killed for his faith. What did they do to him? Well, we know from church tradition what they did was they put him in a brass bull, 
and they basically roasted him slowly. He was killed like a rotisserie chicken. Now, I thought to myself, what would I do if they threatened me and said, if you don't deny Jesus and you don't start worshiping these gods, we're going to put you in a brass bull and we're going to roast you slowly like KFC. Man, that would be tough. And I can tell you this, unless God's grace was in my life, I would buckle under the pressure and so would you. Because in America, we know such prosperity, we know such comfort, it would be very, very difficult for us to stand for Christ, but that's why the spirit of glory and of God, 1 Peter chapter 4, must rest upon us. And so Jesus commends this church and says, hey, some of you are standing strong. Antipas is a man that stood strong, and Jesus commends this church. And you know what? When you resist the idols of this age and you choose not to worship them, Jesus sees that in your life and he honors you. But notice the criticism Jesus gives in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have there some, not all, you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, today people would say doctrine's not important. Jesus disagrees with that. He says you have some in the church who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Verse 15, so you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans are probably one and the same. What was this teaching that some were holding on to in this church? Well, basically, if you read the Old Testament, there was a man by the name of Balak. Balak was the king of Moab. And he was scared of the Jewish nation. And so what he did was he hired a prophet by the name of Balaam. And he said, look, I'm going to pay you, but here's what I want you to do as a prophet, Balaam. He says, I want you to curse the nation of Israel. Well, Balaam came back and said to Balak, the king, he said, look, I can't curse the Israelites because God has blessed them. But because Balaam was greedy for money, here is the strategy he concocted to get Israel to fall into sin. He told King Balak this. He says, get your men to have friendship with your people and especially with the women. Get the women over time to put on their Victoria's Secret stuff. And what will happen is the men will fall into idol worship and they will fall into immorality. And that's exactly what happened in the book of Numbers. And so what is the teaching of Balaam that some were basically tolerating here in the church of Pergamum? They were basically saying, it's okay if you're a Christian and you're sexually immoral and you're idolatrous. What they were trying to do is bridge the gap between the world and Christianity for the sake of popularity. Lest you think that that's not a trend in our time today, you will notice the pictures up on the screen there is a progressive type of Christianity that's being promoted now in a number of churches. I just listened to a podcast the other day about this. Brian McLaren, Jen Hatmaker, you have others like Rob Bell, who wrote the book uh, Love Wins, and there's a number of them that are basically coming out now and saying, look, you can't take the Bible literal. The Bible is intended to be kept up with the times, and so what they say is, you Christians that are condemning gay marriage and homosexuality, no, that's wrong. Jesus loves them and accepts them, and, 
He's okay with their gay lifestyle. And yes, we agree Jesus loves them, but he's not okay with their gay lifestyle. It's okay if you want to have sex before marriage. God is okay with that. How do you know if you're going to be sexually compatible in marriage? And so they would say it's okay for that. They would also say, listen to this, that Jesus' death on the cross was child abuse. And so what they say is, when Jesus died, he was just a moral example. God didn't pour out his wrath on Jesus because that is divine child abuse. And by the way, they're big into social justice and the social gospel, which we're not against social justice, but that is not the essence of the message. And so there is a progressive Christianity that's coming and is here that's trying to wed the world and the church. And basically at the root of it is, we don't want to offend the world. But you know what? Jesus said the cross is going to be offensive. In fact, Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, if I remove the offense of the cross, he says I'm wrong because the cross is not popular. It is offensive. Now, we got to couple that with love. We got to love people. We want to accept people in terms of where they're at because, listen, you and I were once sinners, and God loved us where we were at, but we cannot compromise with the world. And so Jesus here confronts them. He says in verse 16, therefore repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. If those individuals don't deal with this and you don't deal with it in the church and you allow this teaching to run amok in your church, he says, I'm going to come with the sword of my mouth. And then he gives an invitation in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, that would be a believer, I will give some of the hidden manna. Who's the hidden manna? That would be Jesus. And he says, I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Now, Jesus here is making a promise to believers, overcomers. And he's saying, I'll give you myself, the white manna, And I will also give you what? A white stone. Now, what was a white stone in that day? You'll notice the picture on the screen. Whenever a person entered into an athletic contest and they won the contest, what they would do is give that athlete or athletes a white stone with their name engraved on it. Not only was it a reward for their uh, victory, but here's what it did. You had to use the white stone in order to get into the athletic banquet. They had banquets back in that day. And so if you were going to get a mission into the banquet, you had to have a white stone. By the way, it would be like a ring today, you know, when the uh, Clemson or an NFL team wins a title. What do they do? They give them a ring and they actually engrave their name on it. And so Jesus here is promising that overcomers will have eternal life. And so what do we learn here about the church of Pergamum? We learn that we are not to wed ourselves with the world. We're to live in the world, but we're not to imbibe the value system of this age. And what happens is when we love the world and the church doesn't look different from the world in terms of our ethics and our values, you know what happens? We are committing the sin of Pergamum. And there are many churches across America in the name of reaching people for Jesus Christ, you know what they're doing? They're lowering the bar. They're watering the gospel down. Now, obviously, we want to reach people where they're at. We do that here at Calvary Chapel, but the one thing we don't do is we don't water the truth down. We're going to tell you guys the truth. Why? Because that's what God commands us to do. So we want to be in the world, but not of the world. And here's what's happened in the church. It's like the frog in the kettle. 
you slowly begin to turn up the heat, and what happens is the frog doesn't realize it's being cooked. And that's what's happening in a lot of churches in America. They are trying to be popular with the world, and what happens is they end up diluting their witness. Years ago when Laura and I lived in the Northeast, we decided to go all the way up to Maine. And we were driving, we were in New Hampshire, and I saw the sign that said, welcome to Vermont. Vermont's a beautiful state. And I said to Laura, pull over. She said, what, you gotta go to the bathroom? I said, no. So pull over. And so I got out of the car, and where it said, welcome to Vermont, what I did was I took one foot and I put it in New Hampshire, and I took the other foot and I put it in Vermont. And I said, take a picture. She took a picture. I had one foot in one state and one foot in the other state. You know, that's a lot of Christians and churches. They're committing the error of Pergamum. They got one foot in the world in the sense that they live by the values of this age. They are controlled by the values of this age, but they go to church. They go to church. And see, Jesus wants us to be separated unto him. Well, there's one final church that Jesus gives here, and that is the church of Thyatira. The church of Thyatira, this we would call the tolerant church. Ephesus was what? The loveless church. Smyrna was the persecuted church. Pergamum was the compromising church. Now, finally, Thyatira is the tolerant church. And here's the message that Jesus has for this church. Don't tolerate false teachers and their teaching and the sinful life that comes out of it. It's almost like Pergamum and Thyatira are very, very similar. Now, if you look at the map here, you will notice it is the fourth church at the top. You can see it there. There's not an aerial view of this city, but let me show you here are some of the ruins of the area of Thyatira. And here's an interesting find. They found the house of Lydia. Lydia was from Thyatira. She's mentioned in Acts chapter 16. Do you remember Paul led her to Christ when he went to that area? And what did Lydia major in? Purple cloth. Because you're going to find that in Thyatira, the biggest industry in that city was cloth. They would dye cloth, and women were very, very prominent. And so this is a great archaeological find that actually confirms the Bible. Now, what does Jesus say in verse 18? And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God. Why does Jesus identify himself as the Son of God? Because one of the gods that they worshipped in Thyatira was Apollo. And you know what Apollo was called? The Son of God. And so Jesus is debunking that and saying, no, I am the Son of God. The Son of God who has eyes like flames of fire, that speaks of Jesus' omniscience and all-knowing, and his feet are like burnished bronze. That speaks of Jesus stamping out sin in judgment. Verse 19. I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than they are at first. Isn't this great? Jesus knows when you serve him. Listen, Jesus knows that last year you didn't want to get involved, but he saw the fact that you signed on the clipboard and you decided to show up. Jesus saw that last year you weren't even cracking your Bible, and now he sees that you're reading your Bible and you're growing. He sees last year that you weren't tithing and giving, and now he sees that you're giving to the Lord's work. You see, Jesus sees these things, and you know what? He hasn't forgotten you. He commends you. When you go through a difficulty, when your spouse leaves you, or you got cancer, you know what? Jesus sees when you persevere and you hang in there and you don't quit. 
Jesus is not this angry God that can't stand everything in our life and he's like an Egyptian taskmaster. No matter what we do, we can never measure up to him. No. Jesus knows when you and I are growing. And you know what? He's a God of grace. He gives us room to grow. However, verse 20, I have this against you. Don't you hate hearing that phrase over and over? I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was not her name. Jezebel's a title. Jezebel was a woman in the Old Testament that was married to Ahab, the king of Israel. And what she did was she introduced idolatry into Israel. And so whoever this woman was, she basically was introducing into the church idolatry. God calls her a Jezebel. And notice what he says in verse 20, you tolerate that woman. Do you know there are some things that God does not want us to tolerate in the church or in our life? I know we live in the spirit of the age. Everything is about tolerance. If you say, this is a sin, our culture reacts. If you say, transgenderism is wrong, there are two sexes, our culture reacts. And listen, that's not to say we don't love transgenders. We do. We want them to come to Jesus, and we want to help them if they're struggling. We want to help those who are struggling with homosexuality or addiction or whatever it is. But our culture is very tolerant of anything and everyone to the point that we don't call things out. And you know what the Bible says the church is to do? We are to be intolerant of certain things. Obviously, we want people who have alternate lifestyles and people that are struggling with addictions and everything else, we want them to come to Calvary Chapel. Why? Because we love them. Jesus loves them. We want to reach them with the gospel message. But we also cannot eliminate truth. This woman in verse 20 calls herself a prophetess, a female prophet, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit, here it is, acts of immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. Now let me tell you what was going on here in Thyatira. They had what was called trade guilds. If you were a part of a trade, like in their uh, city, it was uh, the manufacturing of cloth. And so they would do wools and they would do dyes. And so they had a bunch of different trade guilds. And what you would do is identify with one of those trade guilds. But here was the problem for the Christian. Those trade guilds each had their own God. And you know what you would do? You would go and you would take a glass of wine and you would pour it out to that deity. And then they would get together and have a huge feast where there would be drinking and then they'd turn out the lights, the clothes would come off, and an orgy would ensue. Well, you can imagine as a Christian, I can't do that. That's immoral. Well, here is this prophetess who's given the title Jezebel, because what she did was she said to the church, hey, it's okay to be a part of those trade guilds. It's okay. God is okay. Listen, you don't want to offend people. Go ahead and engage in the idolatry. You know, offer that wine to that God. Or, you know, if you have sexual encounters with people, God's okay with that. And so this woman, Jezebel, was teaching this toxic doctrine within the church. And by the way, your livelihood was tied to it. And so notice what Jesus says in verse 21. I gave her time to repent. Notice Jesus is very patient with us. And she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her, verse 22, on a bed of sickness. There's a play on words there. She likes the bed. She likes to engage in sexual acts. He said, so since she likes the bed so much, 
I'm going to put her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. Now, the children here are not her biological children. It's probably members of the church. Jesus is saying, I'm going to inflict her with sickness, and I'm going to inflict all those who follow her with sickness, and the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one according to your deeds. What do we learn here from Thyatira? God doesn't want us to compromise with the world. Here was the problem. This church tolerated false teacher that was teaching erroneous doctrine, which was leading to false living. And we have that going on in the church today. I don't have time because we're out of time, but the bottom line is this. There are people today that are teaching. It's okay to have sex before marriage. It's okay to do these things. You can wed the world in Christianity, and he says no. And then he gives a closing remark to this church, but I say to you, verse 24, the rest who are in Thyatira, the ones who are not buying into this Jezebel, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan. That's probably how she justified her teaching. It was a Gnostic teaching, and she was like, look, the teaching that I'm giving you is really the deep things of God. And you scratch your head and go, what do you mean the deep things of God? You mean Sexual immorality and idolatry, and Jesus says, no, it's really the deep things of Satan. He says, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, verse 25, hold fast until I come. Stay faithful to my word. Don't compromise. And then he says in verse 26, he who overcomes and keeps my deeds to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know what Jesus is saying here? This is great. If you're an overcomer, if you've trusted in Christ and you're born again and you're following Jesus, you know what God is going to give you in the kingdom? You are going to rule during the millennial kingdom. You're going to rule the nations. Now, you're listening, say amen. Your rulership watch this, is commensurate with your faithfulness now. The more faithful you are to God now, the greater your rulership. You say, what does that look like? I have no idea. But we're going to have responsibilities during the kingdom. And you will rule and you'll be given the morning star who is Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great promise? So what are the seven churches that we, or the four churches that we've looked at this morning? We've looked at Ephesus and the message there is what? Keep your passion for Jesus. Don't be a loveless church. The second church is the church of Smyrna. That was the persecuted church. Be faithful to Jesus in spite of difficulty and opposition. Thirdly is the church at Pergamum. This is the compromising church. Don't compromise in your Christian life. Now listen, none of us are perfect. We all do. But you confess it, repent of it, and you get it right with God. And then finally, the church at Thyatira This is the tolerant church. This is the church that tolerates false doctrine, false teachers, and false living. And you know what? Leadership's role is to deal with those particular issues. Now, next week, John is going to look at the final three churches that Jesus addressed in this letter. And as I said, each one of these churches is representative of different types of churches today. You see these churches throughout America and around the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word and reminding us not only of your commendation and your grace, 
But Father, we thank you that you also love us enough to correct us. We see that balance of commendation and correction. We thank you that you are merciful to us. And Father, I pray for the church in America, Father. We know there are a number of churches that have lost their first love. We ask that you would revive them. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted. Give them strength. We also pray, Father, Lord God, for churches that are following the way of Pergamum and Thyatira, that are tolerant of sin, that are misusing the Bible, trying to be hip with the culture, and yet watering down the Word of God. I pray that, Father, we would stay faithful. And if you're sitting here this morning, maybe God spoke to you. Maybe you've lost your first love. Maybe you're compromising with the world. Whatever it is, whatever God has said to you this morning, would you ask God to forgive you? And would you repent, as Jesus said, to these particular churches and continue to follow him? Let's just do that for 30 seconds. Father, we thank you this morning, and we just ask, Lord, that you would move in our country, bring revival in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we close in worship, and again, if you're visiting with us, thanks for being a guest here at Calvary Chapel. This week, be salt and light. Remember, you are the lampstand. You are the lampstand. Jesus wants you to shine your light, and we want to encourage you, do an act of kindness. Bless somebody. We got cards back there. Pay for someone's coffee. Leave a great tip and give the waiter or waitress a a card from our church. Plant seeds. That's what Jesus wants you to do. Let's worship God.